<laughs> you don't ever want to come to this class or something. <laughs> you're, Nikki, you're praying just for a safe trip, yes? Healthy trip. Healthy trip. <laughs> Okay. Did you get the word from Mary Jane about Sue? No. So she's on this world cruise. Yeah. They haven't landed anywhere yet. So, well, they're on the they're on the ship. Yeah. The Are they ship being is not confined? Being into the ports. Yeah. The ports, yeah. Oh, in the ocean. No. If I allowed to come to port anywhere, is that the case? Mary Jane, she's on the cruise ship. Has not been allowed to. Galapagos. It was going to go a lot of cool places. Yes, the Galapagos, Fuji. That's a shame. So they had to cancel some of the land trips. Um, but they've redone the itinerary, so she chose to stay on the ship, and then they're going to spend more time in Australia and New Zealand. Um, but right at this point, I think she's in the safest place she could be. Wow. Because everybody, you know, they boarded that ship January 9th, so. Boy, this is getting a little bit wow. nervous. That's crazy. Yeah, she's going to miss on, like, the Taj Mahal. Was really oh, that's a shame. Oh. Some of the other things that she a once-in-a-lifetime trip. Wow. Oh. Yep. She's safe. Right. I mean, it, it's so funny because that's you obviously invest a lot of time, a lot of money. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and But you're, when your life is at stake, you're, yeah, you wonder if you're not going to play around <laughs> with anything. It's, uh, oh, that's a shame. So they didn't get to see the Taj? No. And a couple other things that... Any I other a real long email here if you want to read it, I'll let you read it. Any other prayer request? Just keep Lori Williams. She's a parishioner here. She's just been a bad year <coughs> starting again. This is the chemo did I can't remember, Lynn, is this the, she had chemo she had proton therapy. Oh, yeah, advanced, yeah. Say her name again, Lori. Lori. Lori Williams. <coughs> yeah, the chemo is my niece, Kathy. She's shaved her head Wednesday and had her treatment second Friday. Good. It'll be all year. Yep. Let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. For your words to us, um, stern warnings, um, um, stern warnings, um, encouraging the wicked man to turn and discouraging the virtuous man to turn. Um, the consequences are real um, and frightening. Strengthen all of us, please, in our efforts to be good, um, to turn from our sins, and um, give ourselves seriously to the discipline of Lent, particularly with respect to our bodies, the worldly things. Um, and if we trip, if, um, if we fail in some way on our Lenten promises, our commitments, um, help, us, help us to pick ourselves up again. Come on in, Don. Come on, Mary. Uh, wait to, there's chairs. Um, if you wait until prayers to go help yourself to the feast over there. Um, um, if we trip, um, help us not to get discouraged. 
to stay hopeful, um, to pick up, um, get back on our work. Um, strengthen us, please, in all that we're doing to give ourselves to what you're asking to draw closer to you and to give ourselves really more completely to bringing you to our world, to leave you more completely, particularly um, in our marriages um, with those that we love. I ask a blessing on <coughs> Sue on her journey. Um, keep her safe, most importantly, even if um, she's disappointed in some of the things she'll miss. It's more important that she's safe. Um, stay with her through that journey and surround her with your protection. Um, be with Nikki and her family. Um, most of all, keep them safe, but <laughs> kids on a trip aren't always <laughs> restful. <laughs> um, so, <coughs> how about this, Nikki? Um, um, during their trip, help Nikki and her husband have quiet hearts and um, and all they're doing in their trip, but keep them safe and let it be a restful trip and a joy for all of them um, to be glad for the time together. Watch over Linda's niece, I'm sorry, name? Kathy. Kathy. And um, Lori, um, watch over both of them. Let them know your presence and for any of us, um, whatever trials, whatever burdens we carry, particularly with loved ones, um, help us um, to always hold on to a hope, knowing, knowing, whatever else we don't know, whatever else we can't see, we know you are at work doing something to make things better, to reconcile. Um, strengthen all of us in that hope and bring it to everything we do. And we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Did all of you get this handout, the, the, the terms for narrative and novel point of view of the circles? Do you all have Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what it is. I have this one. I'm just going to go look for your stool. They're, they're planted here, so I think a couple of people don't have them. They're, yeah, they're paired up. So it's just... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is it just this one? Yep. Okay. Terms for narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have that one. Mm -hmm. No, we did not have that one. Doc, do you know where that stool is? Thank you. Yeah. Oh, Let somebody else do it. Let Nikki handle it. Oh, we got it. Oh, there we go now. I'll give it back. Is there a psalm included in that? Yes. Can I have a copy of it there? Uh -huh. Oh, I didn't. I don't think we have Psalm 19. Okay. Uh -huh. 
I'm there 15 minutes in the first couple months. And we're from a little town. None of you have ever been here. Can we, can we start? Can we start? Um, <coughs> next week I'd like to do, can we start? Next week I'd like to do, I think it's Psalm 51, it's that strong penitential psalm. But um, I thought I'd wait a little bit into Lent before we did that, but I'd like to have a, um, a lyric, songs, the songs are lyrics, that's appropriate for Lent. So um, I picked out this one because it, um, it, um, it, it asks for pardon and for trespasses and strength, but it, but it does it in a, with a positive affirming of the goodness in God's creation. So it's, it's, it's both affirming and, and penitential, and it, it seems to me it's a little bit lighter than 51, but next week I'm going to read 51. So, um, Psalm, Psalm 19 this morning. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hands. Day unto day pours forth speech all things, and here it is again. It's, it's a constant in our work. All things in nature speak. Everything speaks. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night whispers knowledge. There is no speech, no words, their voice is not heard. A report goes forth through all the earth, their messages to the ends of the world. He has pitched in them a tent for the sun. It comes forth like a bridegroom from his canopy, and like a hero joyfully runs its course. From one end of the heavens it comes forth, it courses, its course runs through to the other. Nothing escapes its heat. Um, the, um, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The decree of the Lord is trustworthy, giving wisdom to the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The command of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The statues of the Lord are true, all of them just. More desirable than gold, than a hoard of purest gold, sweeter also than honey or dripping from the comb. By them your servant is warned. Obeying them brings much reward. Who can detect trespasses? Cleanse me from my inadvertent sins. Also from <coughs> arrogant ones, restrain your servant. Let them never control me. Then shall I be blameless, innocent of grave sin. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable, the thoughts of my heart before you. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, <coughs> okay let's, oh, thanks, where'd you get it? It was back in the room that we used to be. Thanks. Um, okay, quick. Balance, everything is going. Um, okay, quick review. Wait, I want to look ahead. 
<laughs> next next week, I want to do the the uh, Zosima story, the biography. Um, but I'd like every and I I know lots of you are beyond it and have finished the book. But sometimes it's good to go back and rethink things because you know that when we read something the first time, we really never see it. Um, <coughs> we've talked a lot about form and the work that we've done together, but I just think it's such a difficult concept that I think most of us hear it. It doesn't apply much. Um, it's basic to everything in physics. It's basic to everything in literature. Um, everything. Everything. Um, what are you looking for? Don't ask. <laughs> um, Okay. <laughs> in the in the middle of the brothers, there will be a break from the linear presentation of things. You know that in most novels, that from Aristotle, um, that the the plot consists of all the incidences that take place. This 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 right. And he said, the plot, the sequence of incidences, is an imitation of an action. So everything that happens on the surface, every plot, is actually revealing some interior invisible movement. So the, the, the way to this invisible movement is through the invisible. It's really like Paul saying, we know invisible things through things that are made. Exactly the same. So holding a plot <coughs> together is not small. Because you know that you can't, none of us can read parts well if we don't see the whole, the whole thing. Once you have a story and you go back and read things, you see that the whole is actually present in every part. So the meaning of the part expands. It has far more meaning when you hold that whole, when you have it. <coughs> you know that most narratives um, unfold one thing after another. It's been a principle of narrative from the beginning, um, that there's an assumed cause and effect relationship. There's a continuity of events, one thing following another. So there's an order. That whole notion got exploded in the 19th century, absolutely exploded. And what we discovered, or one way of describing the change that took place, is that we, we moved from, I don't know how else to explain it, a sort of bourgeois conventional understanding of narrative sequence. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Right? We all know that. If you read a Jane Austen novel, you know that um, Jane Austen will describe things in that sequence. There's a unity of cause and effect, and it's assumed that there's a unity of soul. So the one reflects the other. Okay. There's um, variations on that. With some of Dickens' novels, you'll, you'll get um, narratives a little bit out of sequence, um, but not much. But then the 19th century comes, because Freud um, um, fully developed this notion of the importance of the unconscious and its role in our lives. So in, just for example, in uh, Faulkner's Sound of the Fury, because we did that together, you know in the opening Benji section, it starts with Benji and Lester walking along a fence, and suddenly we're back 20 years mm -hmm. in a memory because Benji will hear the, the golfers going caddy, caddy, and his mind is going back to Candace, to caddy. And suddenly we're 10 years earlier. And all of us know, all of us know that, that sequence, 
is never just external. We can be going through the our world and suddenly a memory of something that happened, let's say a painful, a traumatic memory, suddenly pops into our consciousness. You cannot any longer describe narrative sequence, narrative structure in terms of cause-effect sequence because something out of nowhere comes into our mind and plays a major role in how we're experiencing that moment. Is everybody following here? Mm -hmm. So cause-effect and that kind of coherence <coughs> is no longer adequate to describe what goes on in narration, in, a, in narrating a story. And we take it for granted that in a narration it's an imitation of reality, what goes on in reality. So since the 19th century you've had these radical changes taking place in the way um, authors present their narratives. Okay? Is that clear? So in the middle of Brothers, I'm just raising a question. We're not going to get into this today, but I would like everybody to think about this before next week. God, I'm so unsteady. So, in Brothers, we've got this story being told about um, the three brothers and their father. Suddenly, almost in the middle, thanks, Dan. Suddenly, in the middle, the narrator, the narrator interrupts the story and gives recalls an account that he got from Alyosha who took down all these notes from Zosima. And you know that they include Zosima's biography, his story, but it also includes homilies, really interestingly. There's a homiletic note. <coughs> so into this narrative um, comes this section. Now my question is, what does it do for time? our understanding of time, what Dostoevsky does with time. Because you remember, um, not only do we go back in time, to, so we, we're out of narrative sequence right now, we go back into Zosima's life and what happened, um, but at the end of this sequence, when we get this story, Alyosha returns to the monastery, where he finds Pacey praying over Zosima's body, He's exhausted. Alyosha's exhausted. Kneels down next to him to pray, and then he hears, this is it's really lovely, he hears Zosima praying, and apparently Zosima's reading from scripture, and comes to the Cana marriage passage, you remember? And then right at that moment, the narrator is describing what happens, and he's saying, we hear the readings from scripture, and the description is the walls faded. And it's as if we're not there in the monastery, we're back at Cana. So a couple of things are happening here. One is <laughs> the gospel readings. We've got Zosima's story. Included in that story are gospel readings, which means the word. So outside of time, a word is entering time, becomes a part of the present, and then that whole sequence is followed by Alyosha's experience of that, those words. He's back in Cana. So what do we do with narrative time? Um, we can't understand it just sequentially, linearly anymore. Okay, so I just want to throw that question out. What are we going to do with time? How do we look at that? Um, what does that do for our reading of the story? So for next week, just Go back and review some of that. Just you don't have to read it thoroughly. Go back and look at it and 
and see what you think about. Uh, sometimes I wonder what phys what physicists do with you know um, parallel lines that meet or or parallel dimensions or alternative states. You know, so much of that's going on in modern sciences. So know that this is the middle of the 19th century. This is, eight, this is 1860. He predates Freud by 50 years, and after the um, Dimitri section, when, it, when all the reports are reaching everywhere in Russia, the narrator says the whole country is concerned about what's going on in this case against Dimitri because this man killed his father. And the narrator's comment is, on the surface publicly, um, they hate it, but underneath, <coughs> they take joy in it, as if, as if there's this universal instinct to want to see the father killed, authority killed. That's 50 years before Freud. <clears throat> but you all know the poets get there first anyway. But anyway, take a look at take a look at um, take a look at that section because next week I'd like to I'd like to look at the Zosima section and and then the Dimitri section. I'd like to cover both of them. I know that's a lot, but but I think we've got to move on. So the Zosima section. And the Dimitri section, I want to pay close attention to that Dimitri section when he's at the tavern and everybody's getting drunk. Okay? And I'd like everybody to give some serious thought to that because even though, how to put this, it's, it's, um, it's Bacchanal. It's almost an orgy. It's not quite an orgy, but it's everybody's getting drunk. And because everybody is, a turn takes place. So I want to talk about the significance of everybody getting drunk, um, how important that is for what happens. So a couple of things next week, okay? Just to, just to look forward. Okay. Okay. Um, last week I asked all of you if you would give some thought to the action as a whole, because you know I, how important that is for understanding parts. And I said I'd give it. I'd give us a stab at trying to formulate that whole. So this is my effort of trying to articulate, to frame what I think is the whole of the whole book. Um, I've already touched on it, but I want to see if I can nail this down. The great, this is my effort on it, okay? The great theme of Brothers <coughs> is that a whole entire nation is undergoing a trial of faith. An older traditional Christian world, old Holy Mother Russia, is being pierced, violated by a modern non-religious way of life. Rational modes of dealing with the world replace faith, and the almost godlike powers they seem to give man encourage him to doubt the old ways, to question the existence of God, and even to question the role of love in his life. Man finds himself alone confused, not knowing any longer what to believe or who to trust. He's thrown back on animal instincts of self-preservation, of simply using others for his own protection or benefit. Um, or he identifies himself with a newly educated class and looks down on those around him, particularly those who are un uneducated, the folk. He lives in a kind of existential spiritual vacuum. He takes on personas, surfaces. Um, a number of people identify themselves as buffoons, 
Dimitri, or Fyodor calls himself a, a buffoon. Dimitri does in the interrogation scenes. He says he's a fool, a clown. It's in that scene that he says to himself, it's, it's the first time he learned, he learned to see himself as he was. The captain calls himself a buffoon. And if you read far enough, you know that young Kolya, that, really, that precocious kid, he's just a bright kid, calls himself a buffoon. So many people in, in the novel are out of, the, the world's out of joint. And so many people don't know what to do and they make fools of themselves. It, it, it's, a, it's, not, it's like an existential condition. Um, remember earlier in the novel, we looked at those scenes when Alyosha met Dimitri, and Dimitri said, I'm a spider. He, he identified with all these animals. And he said he was a Karamazov, as if, um, as if he were acutely sensitive to something sensualist in himself, giving in to the world, passions. and. Um, so I think that's... That's the action that, um, and it's it's so different from other novels. If you read, a, say, a Hemingway novel, you'll get Hemingway focusing on a on a couple, you know, a, a man and woman, but it's rare to get anybody taking as their subject a whole nation, of people. You know that my contention is that Melville did it in Moby Dick. To me, that that's epic in its scope. Hawthorne gets close. I, I don't think he comes close to what. It, it's close, but he doesn't. He doesn't cover the nation the way Melville does. Dostoevsky does here in Russia, because we're watching a whole nation undergoing a radical change. It's not just a small area. It's a whole nation. Um, so it's a nation undergoing a trial of faith, and it's leaving people. Um, lost and broken up with all of these dislocations, these radical changes taking place. Um, I've suggested that the, because of the influences from the West that, um, that we can look at the novel as a window on the Russian soul, the, the whole people. And if that's true, I hadn't thought about this initially because my focus has been, our focus I think has been on Russia. One of the interesting ironies of that window is if we can look into the Russian people and Eastern people to see how these Western influences are playing out, we can also look from the side of the Russian people into the West. And I've been so, con I don't know if you guys, but I'm so conscious of it because you can't read this novel without feeling that everybody, all the, except for the educated class, because the educated class have got to show how smart and calm and controlled and how much they know everything. All the other people are close to the bone. They live, they, their hearts are on their sleeves. You, you know what they're feeling. Every once in a while, Suzanne will put down the book and says, I can't read it any longer. It's, just, it's, it's at such an emotional pitch through the whole thing. It's interesting to see that because if you look the other way towards the West, you have to, you suddenly find yourself thinking about those questions that Chesterton and C.S. Lewis raised that in the West, people use their intellects to cover themselves up, that they bury their emotions. I remember hearing that the first time we got involved in a, um, a therapeutic center, you know, talking about kids and families and the way they use their mind to bury emotions, stuff them, not deal with them. So one of the, you know, that window's two ways. I mean, we're, our focus is on Russia, but indirectly, it, it's indirectly, it's a comment on the West. 
because most of the people who take on Western values in this Russian world are pretentious, arrogant, and blind. <coughs> they, they don't see that they don't see very well. Um, um, remember that C.S. Lewis in that book that I've, I've talked about a number of times called Abolition of Man, it's a really good book, it's very thin. He says the largest, the greatest task facing us in the West um, is forming good emotions. And he said that one of the characteristics of the West today is what, not, not that men's heads have become too large, these enlarged heads, he said that the, the real problem is an atrophy of the heart. We've, we've closed the heart down. Those of you who remember um, our work on the short stories, remember um, um, Flannery O'Connor's Heart of the Park? If you remember Heart of the Park, Moses sets out because he feels like something's going to happen this day and he ends up following this person. He can't identify it. It's like he's led by some strange sense that something's going to happen. It's a fatalistic sense of what he does. He arrives at the museum, if you remember, and looks at the glass case. Do you remember what he saw there? Shrunken huh? man. Shrunken man. But that was an image of modern man. Under the sciences, man's lost it. He's just this thing. He's reduced to a thing. So one of the great problems, I believe, one of the great problems for educators is how to, how to cultivate good emotions, to, to order our loves. You know. Um, I keep hearing Christ say, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's what I hear. Um, it's not food. So um, the, the novel is a, is a view of Russia and prophetic. It's also in some ways prophetic of what's going on in the West, what we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, the novel and the narrator. Um, very briefly, I'm going to get to your question here. Remember I said that according to Bakhtin, who's been such a help in the modern world, this Russian critic, the, the novel is more open-ended than the epic. The epic goes back to a closed world. It tends to be idealized. It's over. And it always involves the gods' help. Homer, Virgil, both begin invoking the help of the gods. Sing, muse. So the story that they're telling is really told by the gods. They're an instrument through whom this divine voice works. Sing Muse, the anger of Peleus' son. Sing Muse, the man of many ways. Sing Muse, the fugitive. It's Aeneas, you know, looking for his home. In the modern novel, the, the, the divine dimension seems to drop out. It's empirical. It's a product of the modern sciences until you get to somebody like Dostoevsky. But in Dostoevsky, it comes through a regular narrator. It's not narrated by a divine voice. But here, I mean, I'm suggesting that something happens we have to look really closely at because the divine does come in in strange ways. But the novel basically is open-ended. It, it, it stands in an indefinite, open-ended present. So there's an open-ended quality to it. It's also what he calls dialogic because it involves um, Serious dialogues, exchanges between characters, this is really important. But even more importantly, it's dialogic in this sense that every, this is Bakhtin, and I think he's absolutely right on this, every novel assumes another voice or another text. 
um, with which it's exchanging, involved in um, a conversation. So outside the boundaries of this text are other boundaries that are implied or internalized or even sometimes um, explicitly referred to. Is that clear? You know, for just for, I mean, simple example, without getting into it in any depth, you know that 75% of the characters in this novel keep referring to other texts. It's a way of showing how smart they are, how strong this influence is from the West. They're constantly quoting Voltaire or somebody. In this middle section, we're going to have the gospel explicitly brought into the text. So even if it's never explicit, Every novel assumes another text, another voice. It's in relation to something else. T.S. Eliot said um, that we can't read literature well if we don't deal with what he called the simultaneity of this body of works. That Homer is, Homer's not dead, except for people who want to include him in dead white males. God, it drives me nuts. Dead white males. God, as if Homer or Plato as if Einstein were going to die, you know? Einstein will be around. Somebody will surpass him. I, I don't have a question. But they're going to do it because of him. He's going to survive. We read Homer, that, that the Homer's works are alive to us. When we read Dante, he's alive. Um, texts still exist. So we can't learn to read well until we learn to read in a whole tradition and see the way texts engage with each other. Is that clear? If you have a question, stop. Or a comment. The last phrase, how text engage with each other. Mm -hmm. Just clarify that a little bit. First. How text engage with each other. Let me do this a couple of ways, Linda, just to, when I, for, for speaking for myself, I know that as I'm reading, I hear characters, this is explicit, so this isn't me reading again. Characters will speak about Voltaire. They're quoting other texts. That's what so, you mean? well, that's one. That's one. So we see characters who are constantly, and we know when it's one of the parodies. One of the ironies is it shows how pretentious they are. They're trying to show how well read they are, you know. But another, it's in, there's another way in which the, it plays out implicitly. When we get to the Zosima section, we're, the biblical passages are going to keep in a haunting way come into the. When I read Dostoevsky, I mean, to answer your question, it's not as clear, but I, to me it's a better example. I can't read Dostoevsky without seeing um, Dickens everywhere. He could, Dostoevsky could not have done what he did without Dickens. The same large scope, Dickens' world, the same sense of the grotesque, the foolishness of people. He went to school on Dickens. So even if, even if Dickens isn't explicitly present in the text. If you've read Dickens and gone to Dostoevsky, you know, but it assumes sometimes you've read these things. Had lots of you haven't, I mean, you're not English majors, you know, you're reading these things. Shakespeare is a perfect example. You, I mean, you, Shakespeare exists everywhere in Dostoevsky. And you know, I mean, Tom, you, you I mean, you describe it like a lightning rod moment for you that, you know, after you read a couple of Shakespeare's texts, you begin to be aware of other texts that he's written, and you know you've got those in your mind. You set them against each other. Um, remember what Boethius said. Boethius said, 
you're in a predicament and the problem is you don't you don't know that you lost your way the way the way back to sanity is to know your beginnings and your ends how can you do that without putting things together that take you back to your beginnings <coughs> um, here's, a, here's an interesting way that goes to a doctor yesterday I've had back problems that are getting worse and worse for the last year I went to a doctor yesterday and I described my symptoms going back you know, to when I was playing basketball in high school. It's not been, I've had back problems, they've just been minor in my life, but the last year that something's happening. He, he, he looked at the, a sonogram and x-ray, so he already knew coming into the visit when he stepped into the room, he'd seen, because I brought discs with the, you know, the son, he looked at him. He already knew. He said, I want to show you something, and he pulled out a model structure and he said, these two things were never developed, they were supposed to connect but in high, and he said it happens, it's not an unusual thing, at the base of my spine. He said they didn't connect. And, and um, they weren't closed the way they should have been, and it, and it made for problems, and because of your age, you know, things have gotten worse. Well, that's a story of, of dealing with a medical condition right now that has its origins 40 years ago. You know, we, we don't understand our present self well apart from all the things that have led us here. And the same is true with stories. You know, every story assumes other stories outside of its boundaries, other texts. So to fully appreciate this, and it's one of the reasons I'm trying to underscore this, you know, Dostoevsky is, I mean, the narrator is going to take us back in Zosima's life. We're out of narrative sequence. We've got to go back. What's that going to do for everything we do reading forward? And why did he place it here, practically in the middle of the novel? Why did he do that? So, um, so narrative assumes a cause-effect relationship. This, 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 this. But modern narrative has shown us that that's not always true. That very often things are asyncratic, out of time. You know, things are not symmetrical, they're asymmetrical that things don't just neatly fit. Um, as, much as, <laughs> I think, as much as Americans are obsessed with having everything nice and orderly, there are lots of things to our lives that are... Disorderly. Hmm? Disorderly. Yes, yeah, yes, thank you. Okay. Um, the novel we've seen, I want to come to the narrative. The novel has three aspects. This one, particularly, remember I said, it has this manipian aspect. That whenever a culture is undergoing radical changes, um, people no longer know what to do. The codes are gone. It's like they're left in a vacuum. Um, and it makes it easier for them to make fools of themselves because they don't know what's right anymore. I so believe that. I so believe that. I, and I think America tends to be that condition always, you know. That. And I asked the question, I think, last time. When a culture undergoes radical changes and you no longer know what's right, and you, you know, Theodore has a truth. I said, as a, as a Manipian figure, he has a truth aspect to him. He's a, he, a truth image that he reflects the condition that we're talking about, this, manip this dislocation. And, and he does it in an in a interesting, a, a telling way. When he comes back to the monastery, he, he, he charges all the monks with these crimes. He said, you're feeding on the people, you're using the people, you know, 
everybody else looks up to these religious monks, he's condemning them. I think there's, there's, we don't know it yet, but there's a truth aspect to it. When Zosima dies, we watch almost every one of those monks turn on him. So what Fyodor was describing, we, we may have had doubts about it, thought this guy's nuts, but what we learn later confirms all of his charges, that there are spiritual hypocrisies to these in this religious life that people typically don't see. So there's a manipian quality, and we saw it in the titles, a happy family or, you know, I mean, I, I've gone over them before. Um, the one about Rakuten, what's the, the, the educated? Career seminarian. Career seminarian, what a wonderful <laughs> giveaway. Career seminarian. Um, seminarians shouldn't have that mindset, you know, but Rakuten has it. So there's a manipian quality, it's fractured. There, it, everything's parody. Everything's sort of out of place. And one of the startling questions I asked my, I mean, I found myself aware of this time that I'm sure I wasn't aware of when I read it 30 years ago was, if things are this dislocated, as I think they are, that these radical changes are taking place, what does it say to us about a center? If you've been taking your life, if, the, if you've been taking the center of your life respectability, this is the way the culture lives, and suddenly radical changes take place, where's your center? And the interesting thing about me is that I, it made me, it, it sort of underscored one of my insights this time was, there's only one center that never changes. Only one. So when a culture is undergoing radical changes, it, it very often leads them to question metaphysical realities. They should take us back to God. Mm -hmm. And for us, they should take us back to Christ. And here's the irony. One of the things we're seeing is when a culture loses its direction, it tends to be away from Christ. When you lose your direction and you're searching for a center again, that's where you go. Um, and, and the difference between us and people who believe in some other God, Yahweh's God or Islam, is Christ took on a body. He was a human here. We have him to imitate. So if we make manners too much, or not enough, you know, or whatever wrongs we do, we've got him. There wasn't anything wrong. He, he never did anything wrong. So whatever difficulties go on around us, we believe, this group, that's our center. We know where to go. Um, and what is the book showing? What's at the center of the book? Zosima going back to his conversion what changes him and commits him to religious life. And you know that Alyosha is going to carry on Zosima's life. So the center of this book, <coughs> indirectly, in an implicit way, is the Word, Christ, and the hope. Um, that's why I think you can't call it a, um, a tragic novel. It, if anybody reads it that way, I think they're misreading it. It's a purgatorial comedy. There's suffering everywhere, but the ultimate end is hopeful. That's the action of the the book. So a manipian quality, it's also got a detective quality. The, remember, I, I think I read it, the opening, the opening lines of the, of the novel, the very opening. Um, Alexei Fyodorovich Kermazov was the third son, Landover, well known in his day, um, and still remembered amongst, because of his dark and tragic death. 
which happened exactly 13 years ago, and which I shall speak of in its past. So, for the moment, I only, so the opening lines introduce us to a detective story. What happened 13 years ago? Who died? Why did he die? What's the significance of it? And you know, as you move through the novel, the narrator keeps referring to things that's going to happen, something that's going to happen. There are these hints, and he doesn't give them away. Um, so there's a detective quality. Um, and the best way to put it is, is to say, what happened? And like Hamlet, to ask the question, who's there? I can't say that strongly enough. The opening of Hamlet, and Dostoevsky would have known that, the opening words of Hamlet, who's there? Remember, the ghost comes in, and you have to begin to ask, do we really see people? Who's there? Who's behind Fyodor Karamazov? Who is Ivan? You know, who's Alan? All of them undergo crises, real changes. We think that Alyosha is a fixed character beginning in the middle of the book. He undergoes the spiritual crisis. Lisi, the young woman, you know, that he becomes engaged to, um, undergoes what seems to be a real change in that scene where the two are betrothed. Later, when we come back to her, we're going to see somebody aware of something like possession, demonic possession. The chapter is called <coughs> a little demon, a little devil, I think. Who's there? Dimitri's going to be con con um, accused of the murder and convicted of it. I'm giving things away and I don't like, but we're getting close enough. He's going to be accused of the murder. When it goes public and it reaches national proportions, the description is um, everybody got caught up. They loved it. They believed that he was guilty. They wanted to believe it because they loved the idea that some guy could kill his father. How well did the peasants read him? When we leave the peasant scene after the interrogation, when we, when we leave the, uh, the uh, tavern scene, everybody, everybody in the countryside is convinced he did it. Do they see him right? Who did it? I mean, you won't know until later when the, you know, the trial takes. We have to keep reading to find out. Um, so there's this detective aspect. Who's there? Who are people? How well do people read? And we know for the most part people don't. When the, when the investigators come in to, to interrogate him, they get everything, at, they're smart, they're intelligent men, they get everything wrong. When the doctors are brought in to give their diagnosis of, you know, the sick people in the book, they're almost universally wrong. You know, what Dostoevsky is showing is how often reason goes bad. So there's this detective quality, who's there, who did this, what's the meaning of this action? And we won't know till the end. Um, and finally, what I called the carnival, what Bakhtin called the carnival aspect of Dostoevsky and some modern novels. We're in a world that's turned upside down. It's carnival. You know in um, Mardi Gras that traditionally in Mardi Gras, those out of power, power usually assume positions of power, and those in power step down. It's just a moment of celebrating them, getting drunk, carousing, doing away with formal, respectable codes of conduct. For a moment, things are turned upside down. It's carnival. You know all the dressing and the masquerading and you go through town and the drinking, and which is really a way of describing the Dimitri exercise, uh, the episode at the tavern. All, all the peasants um, have lost their way. Um, the the emancipation just took place, they've been freed, and their lives were actually worsened because of it. And the landowners, 
um, who thought they would benefit from it were hurt as well. So economically, it's a, it's a culture struggling with itself. Um, the people who are coming in to take over are all the functionaries, the educated, the lawyers, the doctors, the attorneys, the commissioners. So we watch, we watch a bureaucratic class come in and take over, and they're uniformly wrong in what they do. Nobody gets it right. So we're in a topsy-turvy carnival world. Things are strange. Things are grotesque. It's an unsettled world. So let me, those are, oh, the narrator. Okay, hold on. Um, you, did I go over the circles with you? I know you did, right? Okay, good. So you know. So um, the narrator um, is a person in the story. He belongs to the village. We know that. He's speaking of people he knows. He's received this long written thing from Alyosha on Zosima's life. So this guy is putting things together. So there are lots of times when he stands, he's, a, he's, he's familiar, he belongs, he's of them, he's one of them, he's telling the story. A lot we know he's gathered from things that people have told him, otherwise he couldn't tell the stories he does. But we also know, interesting, this is where to me it becomes problematic. We also know that he gets into the minds of lots of people that he couldn't have had any access to. Even if he got information from some people, there's things that he knows that he could have had no access to. So there's an omniscient quality to him. And all I can say in response to that is I think we're, we're meant to say, you may, I'm glad to hear anybody on this, but seems to me we're, we're meant to feel that this guy, had, I think, like Dostoevsky, has this real identity with people, identifies with them, particularly the folk, um, but he's also detached from it. Um, when we look at Kolya, the young boy, I think we're going to, I think Dostoevsky's showing us a prototype of the novelist because he's very cute, he's very perceptive, but he also steps back. He does not sentimentalize anything. So this narrator um, has a sense of familiarity about all these people. He's faithful to the way they speak, to their own language. He doesn't impose his own language on them, with, which lots of narrators do. He gives them their own words. So he's rendering things faithfully. So there's this close attention to things. But he's also detached. He steps outside. And he can see inside, because he's often rendering what's going on in a person's thought in a way that nobody could have known. And beyond that, I'm not sure what to say or answer your question, but if you still got a question, go ahead with that, because the narrator's an, an interesting figure, but go ahead. So to me, that just kind of reinforces that it's Dostoevsky. Okay, let me ask it this way. This is really good. Um, why, don't, Jane Austen tells Oliver, we don't have narrators, tell, she's telling a story. <coughs> Modern critics will say, you can't call it the narrator, it's somebody else narrating. You know, it's not the... But let's just say for the sake of making this simple, Jane Austen narrates her novels. We don't have people narrating. Dostoevsky could have narrated this, but he didn't. He chose a person, right? Why? But he, I'm saying he was the person in the town. I know, but I'm saying he's not. He's not. We know that biographically, we know, you know, this, and, 
even if he had been, it's still, it still he doesn't identify himself as Dostoevsky. I mean, this guy's identity is kept a secret, and um, and we know we know enough about this narrator to know that there are differences between him and Dostoevsky as a person. So my question is, why would Dostoevsky have done that? Because he could have easily narrated it himself. To give it more credibility, maybe? Why would it give it more credibility? If he'd written it, I'm assuming it still would have been pretty credible. If, he, if it was from him? Yeah. Anybody? Francis just pointed out that in the introduction of the book, there's kind of a, a discourse on this very subject. I thought that's on is this Roman, the preface? Roman numeral 15 in the introduction. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Second paragraph down. Um, if anybody wants to. Do you want to read it? Well, I. Is it brief? I should make Francis read it because no. she's the one that found it. <laughs> no. first, make her read no. it. The first voice to be heard in the Brothers Karamazov is the narrator's. Needless, needless to say, my, my apologies. <laughs> needless to say, he is not Dostoevsky. Needless to say, no, it's not. No, that's what it says. I know, I know, I'm just laughing because I, I think lots of people. The brief have note from the author at the start of the book, which the author himself calls superfluous, accomplishes a number of important things by way of introduction, but above all, it introduces us to the whole stylistic complex of the narrator's voice. And it goes on after that. But. Yeah. By the way, I thought I thought the preface, the introduction, was really good. Except I had a, I, and I, I've got a couple of issues with him, but I, but I thought overall it was an excellent, just an ex excellent. There's a couple of things that I don't agree with pretty strongly, but um, anybody else? Why would Dostoevsky have chosen a narrator from the town instead of himself? It almost seems like there's an objective observer that's more in a. Um, I see it all, and not making any judgmental thing, just this, and these characters are authentically who they are. It's almost like a godlike, a spiritual kind of, just this is reality, or this is spirit, yeah. or this is, this yeah. is what, it's kind of way, way back there, but it's there. Yeah. I, I, wait, I hold on, I just want to, if I can, I would agree with all except godlike. It seems to me one of the reasons he did this is to make it, it's really, I mean, it's a paradox to, to make this not godlike, mm -hmm. that this is from a human being, because one of the dangers of 19th century, particularly with somebody like Dickens, is you get an om omniscient perspective and it leaves you full of questions. By having this narrative, he takes that out. So if, if something divine comes in, like in the Zosima thing or the Cana, it's going to come in through another mode. But we're to understand that, that we're on a human level. He, the interesting thing is this guy is so prescient. I mean, he sees, he's presenting the, in, the interior, so there's an omniscient perspective. But he's different from an, an omniscient narrator because we can identify him. He, he's, he belongs to that town. He's a villager. He knows these people. He's looking back 13 years at something that happened, so he's reflected on it. In one, in one sense, it, it, it reaffirms how capable people are, if they pay attention to things, of rendering a world this rich. That, that a human person is capable of becoming this involved in a life. Um, because he's taken on a lot, and it's like the Russian people. Um, 
but it comes through an actual human being, an individual we can identify, even if only vaguely. Somebody else? Well, I, I think you said it, but I think there's a perception that allows us to see what other people don't see about a character. Like you, you have a, you have an external self that that we all present, but there's a lot going on. It's like the duck swimming, right? You know, he looks like he's really still, but he's pedaling like crazy under the water. You know, we've all got something going on inside, and what the what the narrator allows us to do is see inside that character and find out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So you you know, Ivan, you you see this educated, intelligent, loves to postulate on anything mm -hmm. outside. Very so you would you would see that person. You say he's very confident, very self confident. Well, inside, he's anything but that. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's what. I, I, you know, because I, I agree with you. I, I thought it was, you know, Dostoevsky in the village, you know, and he was in all these different places and telling us about the story we see. But the one distinction is that he sees inside all these people. And so we get to see the difference between, you know, what you present that you think is, um, re, you know, respectable versus what's you know, the, the, the conflict that's really going on inside. Wait one second, Debbie, because the other thing that strikes me, because um, I'm trying to make a distinction between an author and a narrator and why he did it, I, I've given, I think, one of the most basic reasons is 19th century late, you're already beginning to question that omniscient point of view. So modern writers, take Faulkner. Faulkner's going to have somebody tell us, or Conrad, there's no way Conrad is going to let anything come into that story that can't be verified by another character. Because he says, his assumption is, how do you know what's going on in a human being's soul? I mean, it's, who do you think you are? You know, it's that sort of... So Conrad does everything he can. I mean, the, think about the technical difficulties that presented him with. Dickens didn't face that. Um, Conrad did. Faulkner, who learned from Conrad, does the same thing. Um, it seems to me also, you're not only showing your skepticism, a modern skepticism about an omniscient point of view, it's also doing this. Most people look at authors like priests. He's exalted. He can see, this is so true. He, we, I mean, when, when you suddenly experience the downfall of a priest, your world collapses. You know, you've looked up to this guy all your life. Um, I mean, we've seen struggles in churches. I mean, churches divide down around what happens to priests. You look up to this priest and suddenly you hear things about him. Your first response, didn't happen, not so. And then you find out it was. Um, so we, we, we know our tendency is to exalt, to look up, put on a pedestal, that these people can't do anything. But we all know they, they're humans, that they, sin, they have sins the way all of us do. Priests go to confession all the time. And I think there's a tendency to look at authors that way. He sees so much. He's so great. By putting this, this is what's stunning to me, and it's, going, it's just reinforcing the point of already made, finally, but to put all of this in the, in the hands of an ordinary man reaffirms the, the powers of most of us ordinarily that too often we don't admit, because it's easier 
not to take on those burdens. It's easier to say, I can't do it, I don't know it. Um, and so it's really, to, to give this man, I mean, put all of this in the mind of a narrator, and to have him treated as objectively as he does, to, to be that faithful to so many details, and still show us the interior, is saying, this is what the human, I've been saying this since Dante, this is what God created, God did this extraordinary thing when he created us, and all the great poets show us. And if you look at the modern scientific tendency with human beings, it's diminishing. It's to shrink him down. Tonight, he's a product of forces he has no control over. You know, he's more of a shrunken. This affirms the extraordinary gifts of us as humans, because in all respect, he's a villager. You know, he, there's nothing said about him that gives us any sense that he stood out in his village. Um, in fact, the light, I can't, I'm, I, I've gotten to the end and I, I can't remember it, but this, I've got this on my mind in a way that I didn't when I first read the book. I want to see at the end if anything is said to make him stand out, because my suspicion is he's just an ordinary guy that nobody knows. I mean, they all know him by name, but they would have never said, you told this story? I think it's just his way of saying, there are people, all of us can see more than we think or, you know, I, so taking the, a narrator and having a narrator <coughs> tell the story instead of those guys who do it, I think has implications for the way we know what we know. How do you explain scenes like um, Alyosha's dream, vision, whatever it was, when he was by the coffin? Um, how does a man in the village know that? See, but I've been saying that when I, because I remember weeks ago you said the same thing. You said the only one he gets, whose mind he gets into an Alyosha's, and it's just not so. We, you, if you go through it and you're aware of it, you'll read it differently. But I, it's something on my mind from the beginning. He gets into the heads of lots of people, lots of them. Dimitri, at certain points, there's no way that could have come to him secondhand or thirdhand. When he talks about Kolya, this young kid, we get into Kolya's mind and we know things about him. There's no way that could have been reported to anybody. Or the, the, the scene that Doc's talking about. That's why I said that there's this paradoxical quality, that he's a villager, he stands outside of them, he can present things objectively as they are. But this guy, I, my only suggestion, he seems to have this intuitive sense, somehow knowing maybe putting it together. We don't know. What we've got is the story, and we know that it's a narrator. You know, we, it's hard to go past that. We don't know. All we know is that he does it. Um, and I think we trust him, for the most part. Um, and very often, he's very human. You know, that one page where you took us to, I think he said, back to the story. You know, or, or I'm gonna give you Alyosha's report. It, he, he's very much like a servant. There's a ministering aspect to what he's doing that he's taking this stuff and, you know. Anyway, it's such a good question because it really, I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things you can overlook because you're so preoccupied in the story. But good storytellers have to, how am I going to do this? What's, you know, because how you do it gives something away. Dostoevsky didn't do it himself, he had a narrator. And it leaves us with these questions, which I think are really good questions, but. 
Debbie, sorry. You made my point. <laughs> what was it? But you were just you're way more articulate than I. No, that I. I, yes, I is that is that that um, I, I think for for the general reader, the person who's reading this, to really get what is being being done here. If Dostoevsky had done that, it sets him up here, mm -hmm. and then it's not available to everyone in this room. Uh, that we, we couldn't possibly be the people who, uh, a person who could do this. So, um, you were much more articulate than I, but there you are. That was basically what I was going to say, is that, that it, it makes this accessible, in my opinion, to everyone who is reading it, whereas had it been Dostoevsky, um, folks might, might have said or thought, well, he's here, I'm here, I can't possibly, yeah. I couldn't possibly be yeah. this insightful or have this kind of influence. You are not less articulate than I am, and I'm not going to buy that. No. Here, and, I'm, and I just want to qualify that a little bit because I wouldn't, I, I want to be really firm here, sure, because that's not quite what I'm saying. You, you know that because I think I'm saying the argument I'm making if he had if he had been the narrator everything that he did that has been done would still be accessible so like we would understand it the same way he could have done this but he didn't he he did it through a narrator what I'm saying is I hope everybody sees this here that here's the reader if Dostoevsky had done it it would have been Dostoevsky and the story Right? Telling. He's standing outside of it. Here's the reader. The narrator is inside the story. So it's not Dostoevsky outside ah, here. Okay. Mm -hmm. what, what I think it's doing is not, because if he'd done it, it would have been as, as accessible. Dostoevsky is a clear writer. He's written lots of novels. It would have been the same novel, exact, except some of the narrative stuff to have taken out. It wouldn't have been less accessible. Accessible. What it does indirectly is affirm. It's an affirmation of the skills, the the gifts that human beings have. That I think. I'm, I'm not sure that this is completely his motive. That in our pride, keeps us from doing things. You know, and because in one sense this is an epic undertaking. Whoever did this. This was not a small thing to do, right? This is Russia on a, on a major scale. And we knew nothing about this guy. He's not a polished writer and everybody goes to sign off on books. We don't even know that other people in the village know that he, you know. So there's this wonderful paradoxical quality to this guy that he could do this. And, and I don't think it's an accident that Dostoevsky does it. It's his way of affirming the ordinary person. Somebody among the you know that Dostoevsky affirms he elevates this he says in fact it's it's an argument repeatedly said if there's any hope for Russia it's in the ordinary people because all these other people are contributing to its destruction that ordinary people have this great gift and this is like an affirmation of it um, accessible is the wrong word what I meant was that we individually. Had, had it been Dostoevsky who had written it, or it was the narrator, that we as common, right. everyday right. guys mm -hmm. could not right. be able to do this. And that's what I meant. And he by takes that away not from that we couldn't it. Right. read it and understand right. it. It's that 
the narrative that we are we don't we're not equipped to do what this narrative and he takes is. that away from and us. he takes it away yeah 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 it's not a small thing you know when you're thinking about going to the knowledge of the narrator what kind of knowledge it's I mean a lot is being said there even though we don't see it because our focus is on the story not how you know how not how it's being told don't, don't we experience it more this way than we would the other way though I mean if if Dostoevsky had been the narrator standing completely out and telling the story. I think that would have been a different, a different experience than here's the, the, the person that's telling it is like standing right next to the characters yes. and telling us, yes. sharing with us the experience. Yep. And to me, particularly when we go through the scenes like Ivan in the inn, I mean, I'm sorry, Dimitri in the inn, you know, Ivan's battle with his demons, you you feel more a part of it. And as a result of that you get you know, more more movement from it than you might get if it was just somebody standing outside yep. observing it. Agreed. Completely. Completely. We're far more a part of something. Yep, agree completely. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. That was Pretty much what I was going to say is that your perspective, you identify with the narrator, and if they're part of the village or part of it, then you're kind of right there. More immediately a part of it. Instead of being looking down on it or or observing it from it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Did that help? Did it? You don't look, did it? It was a really good question. Really good. Lots of people wouldn't go there. You're focused on the story, but it does matter. It really does matter. There's a lot to it. Okay. Um, the Grand Inquisitor. We did. I I took a look at the rebellion scene with you, didn't I? Last time. Did I? Um, I just to sort of quickly lead up to this. We did the betrothal chapter too, didn't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the betrothal chapter, some of you may differ with this, but um, but it seems to me what's happening is that um, Lisa. What what he's showing is how susceptible people are to pride. I think that both of them are. Uh, Alyosha is good in acknowledging to her that he's got his faults. I mean, what's touching? Part of what's touching about this episode is once again he's, he does it numerous times. He says he's not good uh, because she's she's struggled. I think it's it's in pride. Nobody wants to admit to somebody else your faults because it makes you seem inferior. So she wrote the letter, wanted to take it back, say she didn't mean it. I mean, all those things happened. But Dostoevsky, or I mean, sorry, Alyosha knew that it was sincere, so she was expressing her love, and they get past that, and for a moment they're betrothed. We're watching a young man and woman um, allow themselves to be vulnerable in the presence of each other. They, they undress for a moment. And we're left, we, we leave them in, with the sense that they are betrothed now. The mother's upset with it. She doesn't want to lose her daughter. Um, and um, we go from there to that scene with um, Smerdjikov and his guitar, and I looked at it, didn't I? His guitar and his slicked hair and hating the Russian people. He's been educated in a way that makes him seem French. 
So he has all these French pretensions and looks down on the Russian people um, and presents himself as being this figure that she would admire. She said, I'd love to see a duel, and we know that that's the last thing he could do because he's basically a coward. So we're, in another scene, Dostoevsky once again showing the effects of these Western influence that Smerdyakov um, is trying to be somebody he's not in, in, a, in a more absolute way, I think, than any other character in the book. Playing a guitar, slick hair. Um, um, and then we go from there to um, the meeting between Alyosha and Ivan, and um, it's the first time, in a sense, they've gotten to know each other. And in the rebellion section, Ivan has these descriptions of these horrific things humans do to each other. We've read that, did we? With his description of what the Turks did, nailing children by their ears. Okay. So we come out of that. Wait, so he describes the horrors that humans are capable, and he does it in a way that, that um, excludes children because children don't have powers of reason yet. They may be mischievous, but at a young age, before their powers of reason come along, they're relatively innocent. And so it horrifies him even more to watch adults treat children the way they do because adults have powers of reason and they show how bad reason can be and against the innocent. He's horrified by that one woman, or by the mother of that young kid, who, remember, who was set loose for the dogs to sick on him. He gets furious. He says, um, let the mother forgive herself or, you know, forgive, but don't let that kid forgive what they did to him because he was innocent. He's outraged. And then he finally asked um, Alyosha if he could be the architect of a, of a brave new world. Um, but the condition of that brave new world was that he kill one innocent kid, would he do it? You remember, and Alyosha says he would not. And then Alyosha says, but there was one person who was innocent, and that was Christ. And Dosia, I mean, Ivan, in some sense, sort of anticipated, and that takes him to the Grand Inquisitor. Okay? And we haven't, we didn't, yeah, so let's go there. So, this is page 247. Interestingly, he begins, and this goes to whose point? Somebody's. Um, page 246. But here too it's impossible to do without a preface. You see, my action takes place in the 16th century. Back then, by the way, you must have learned this in school, back then it was customary in poetic works to bring higher powers down to earth. I don't need to mention Dante. So you, we all know that it was typical in the epic to begin with an invocation of the gods. So in every epic, a transcendent divine order is brought into the human. That's the nature of the epic. So he's acknowledging that. Now, notice the difference. He doesn't begin invoking them, but the story deals with a divine person coming down. In this case, it's Christ. So a divine order is brought into the world. So it's not quite like what was in the past, but in a sense, his way, it's his way of linking with the past. It's showing how literary he is. Christ comes into the world, the next page, on 249. Um, they had just completed um, a day before the execution of almost 100 heretics. They were burned at the stake. Christ comes into the world, and people are immediately drawn to him. They recognize him. They want to touch his garment. He heals a blind man. 
in the presence of everybody, which in increases the awe and the, the desire to come to him. A young girl is brought in, out in a coffin, of a, a funeral has just taken place, and they ask her to um, raise her from the dead, and he does it. Um, the cardinal watches all of this, and when he sees Christ do this, he suddenly tells his soldiers to take him, and they capture him, or arrest him, and put him in jail. That night, the Grand Inquisitor comes to him, page 250. Um, he stands at the entrance for a long time, for a moment of two gazes into his face. At last, he quietly approaches, sets the lamp on the table, and says to him, Is it you? You? But receiving no answer, he quickly adds, Do not answer. Be silent. After all, what could you say? I knew too well what you would say. You have no right to add anything to what you've already said. This is, this is actually, we can... We can take all of this at face value, and I, it's, it's hard for me to see taking any of it face value because even though he's constantly accusing Christ, the man he's accusing is God, <laughs> as, if, as if Christ didn't already know this stuff. But but that's his mode. I mean, he's he's taking this role and reminding Christ of all the things he didn't do right, um, <coughs> so he can't do this anymore. Um, go down to the bottom, two fifty. The prisoner, silent too, just looks at him without a word, Alyosha asks, but that must be so, Ivan says. The old man himself points out to him that he has no right to add anything that was already said once, that if you like is the most basic feature of Roman Catholicism, in my opinion. Everything they say has been handed over by you to the Pope, therefore everything now belongs to the Pope. Now hold on to that, because one of the questions I'm going to ask when I just get through this very brief summary, we'll go to this this question of what is it about Roman Catholicism that Ivan objects to, okay? Um, middle of 251, was it not you said I want to make you free? But now you've seen these free men, the old man suddenly adds with a pensive smile, yes, this work has cost us dearly. But we have finally finished this work in your name. For 1500 years we have been at pains over this freedom, but now it's finished and well finished. You do not believe that it's well finished? You look at me meekly and do not deign even to be indignant. Um, I'll go down. Um, Alyosha is still puzzled with all of this, but um, the, um, the cardinal goes on. Um, hold on. On 252, he's, he's coming to the point of laying out his argument. Um, from the based on the three temptations of Christ, but he, he prefaces his argument with this. He says, if you had gathered all the greatest men in the world together to ask the most fundamental questions of mankind, they would not have been able to come up with these three questions. He says, um, at, the, at that time, if ever a real thundering miracle was performed on earth, it was on that day of the three temptations. That was a miracle. The miracle lay precisely in the appearance of those three questions. If it were possible to imagine that those three questions um, had been lost from the books without a trace, and it was necessary that they be restored, thought up, and invented anew to be put back in the books, and to that end all the wise men in the earth, rulers, priests, scholars, were brought together and given this task to think up to invent three questions such as would not only correspond to the scale of the event, but moreover, 
would express in three words, in three human phrases only, the entire future history of, of the world of mankind. So the most important question to keep in mind, it's the one I want to come to when we just go through it, is what do those three miracles tell us about us? Why did Christ do them? Because every one of them was directed at something dealing with us. And not all the wise men in the world could have come up and so it's a testament to the to the way Satan surpasses us in brilliance that he could come up with that. And that Christ answered Satan's temptations. Um, go down. Decide for yourself who was right. You were the one who questioned you then. Recall the first question. Um, you want to go into the world and you are going empty-handed with some promise of freedom, which they in their simplicity and innate lawlessness cannot even comprehend, which they dread and fear, for nothing has ever been more insufferable for man and for human society than freedom. But do you think these stones in this bare, scorching desert? But do you see them? Turn them into bread and mankind <coughs> will run after you like sheep, grateful and obedient, though eternally trembling, lest you withdraw your hand and your loaves cease for them. But you did not want to deprive man of freedom and rejected the offer. For what sort of freedom is it, you reason, if obedience is bought with loaves of bread? You objected that man does not live by bread alone, but do you know that in this name of the very earthly bread, the spirit of the earth will rise against you and fight with you and defeat you, and everyone will follow him, explaining, who can compare to this beast, for he has given us fire from heaven? He goes on to say, the, the claim of science is that the end of man is self-preservation. We need food to live. We can't live without it. Um, go down a few lines on 253. They shall seek us out again underground in catacombs, hining, for again we shall be persecuted, tortured. They will find us and cry out, feed us, for those who promised us fire from heaven did not give it. And we shall finish building their tower, for only he who feeds them will finish it. So never, never will they feed themselves without us. No science will give them bread as long as they remain free. But in the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, better that you enslave us, but feed us. Now go on, hold on just for a second. Go on the very bottom of 253. So the church has been lying to them, promising something, um, aware of how weak man is because he wants to live. The deceit will constitute our suffering, for we shall have to lie. This is what the first question in the wilderness meant. This is what you rejected in the name of freedom, which you placed above everything. Yet this question contains the great mystery of this world. Had you accepted the loaves, you would have answered the universal and everlasting anguish of man as an individual being, and of the whole of mankind together, namely, before whom shall I bow down? Now remember the two other um, temptations are Satan took Christ to a high place and showed him and said all these can be yours you can be the ruler of all these kingdoms if you serve me if you bow down to me and you remember now just to go back Christ's response to the first temptation when he said turn these stones into bread was to say God says uh, man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that's his first answer when Satan says, all this should be yours if you bow down to me, he says, God says, you will serve no other gods but me. In the third temptation, remember he takes him to the pinnacle, or sorry, the temple, and says, cast yourself down. 
because he knows he'll be ministered by angels. And Christ says, you don't tempt the Lord thy God. Okay, those are the three temptations. Um, um, let me just try to pull some of this together. The, the difficulty about this chapter, it seems to me, is that he's dealing with three temptations, but he doesn't deal with them sequentially. He, it's a dense, dense chapter, and very often um, the terms that he uses, like mystery and authority, or you took this away, you took it this way, applies to every one of the temptations. Um, so sometimes it gets confused, but those are the three basic ones. On 255, um, in the middle, Thus you and yourself laid the foundations for the destruction of your own kingdom, and do not blame anyone else for it, if this is what was offered you. There are three powers, only three powers on earth, capable of conquering and holding captive forever the conscience of these feeble rebels for their own happiness. These powers are miracle, mystery, and authority. And he's saying the Catholic Church has taken those on. You rejected the first, the second, and the third, and gave yourself an ex as an example of that. But the dread and wise spirit set you on a pinnacle of the temple and said to you, if you would know whether or not you're the Son of God, cast yourself down. Because the assumption is the ministering angels will catch him. But you heard and rejected the offer and did not yield and did not throw yourself down. Though, of course, in this act you proud, in this you acted proudly and magnificently like God, but mankind, that weak, rebellious tribe, are they gods? So you asked of them something they couldn't, they didn't have the strength to fulfill. Go down at the bottom. But you did not know that as soon as man rejects miracles, he will at once reject God as well. For man seeks not so much God as miracles. Um, going over the bottom of 256. I want to just try to rush through this so I can get to a question. Remember that there were only several thousand of them. They were as gods, but what of the rest? He's referring to the passages in Revelation where it talks about those who have been saved. And, and um, the Cardinal's asking, what about the rest of the millions who don't have the righteousness or the strength of those who were saved as they're presented in Revelation? What are the rest? Is it the fault of the rest of the feeble mankind that they could not endure what the mighty endured? Is it the fault of the weak soul that it's unable to contain such terrible gifts? Can it be that you indeed came only to the chosen ones and for the chosen ones? But if so, there is a mystery here, and we cannot understand it. And if it's a mystery, then we too have the right to preach mystery and to teach them that it's not free choice of the heart that matters and not love that, but the mystery which they must blindly obey, even setting aside their own conscience. So we did. We corrected your deed and based it on miracle, mystery, and authority, and mankind rejoiced that they were once more led like sheep, and that at last such a terrible gift, which had brought them so much suffering, had been taken from their hearts. Tell me, were we right in teaching and doing so? Have we not indeed loved mankind, and so humbly recognizing their impotence, and so lovingly alleviating their burden, and allowing their feeble nature even to sin with our permission? Why have you come to interfere with us now? And why are you looking at me so silently and understandingly with your meek aim? Be angry. He wants, wants a fight. Um, um, he adds to the argument that he's making a few lines down. For a long time now, eight centuries already, we have not been with you, but with him. Exactly eight centuries ago, we took from him what you so indignantly rejected. 
the last gift he offered you when he showed you all the kingdoms of the earth. We took Rome and the sword of Caesar from him, that is authority, proclaimed ourselves so rulers of the earth, the only rulers, though we had not yet succeeded in bringing our cause to its full conclusion. So he's taken every one of the powers offered in the temptations. Um, sorry. Um, going over page 260. Um, one of the historical marks for Ivan in his argument is that time when King Pepin um, gave um, the northern states to the Pope, which became the Papal States. And Ivan is taking that as an indication of the Pope assuming political power. So it's not state power, he's assuming a temporal power, a political power that for him confirms his belief that Rome is at fault, okay? Um, on page 260, in the middle of the page, but that's absurd, he cried, your poem praises Jesus, it doesn't revile him as you meant it to, and who will believe you about freedom? Is that, is that any way to understand it? It's a far cry from the orthodox idea. It's Rome and not even the whole of Rome. That isn't true. They're the worst of Catholicism, the, inquis the uh, inquisitors, the Jesuits. He goes on, we know, if you've been reading, you know that he's openly critical of um, the Reformation thinkers, um, Luther and um, Calvin. Okay, so, um, how does the Inquisition scene end, do you remember? With a kiss. Hmm? With a kiss. Yeah. You, um, you remember what happens. Christ stands up and kisses the Inquisitor, and the Inquisitor says, I mean, humiliated and in some sense defeated. And instead of killing him the way he said he was going to do, he says, go and come, don't come again. And you know how the discussion with Ivan ends, between Ivan and Alyosha, he stands up, right, and kisses him, and Ivan accuses him of plagiarism, <laughs> plagiarizing his poem. And, okay, let's take a minute. Um, what does the first temptation show us about us as humans? Wait, th I've got three questions. One of them is, what do these temptations show us about ourselves? I want to look at each one. The other is, what, what does Ivan's Ivan's presentation teaches about him that this is the way he sees the temptations in Christ because he's a character. I don't think there's no way Alyosha would have written this story or Dimitri. This is purely Ivan. I mean, it really belongs to him. What does it tell us about him as a character in this story? And the third question is, what does this tell us about his his attitude towards Catholicism, and why does he have it? Because I think I think Dostoevsky shares this attitude in some way, but we don't have to make that connection. But those are my three questions. Let's just take the first one. Take the first temptation. What does it teach us about us? The devil says, Christ is starving. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's got to be starving. He's human. <coughs> He's got to be starving. And the devil says to him, if you're God, turn these stones into bread. Um, and then Christ says, God says, you don't, 
live by bread alone, um, but by every word from the mouth of God. What does that teach us about ourselves? Sorry, I have a few. That's okay. Sorry, I'm sorry, we're late, Debbie. What does it teach us? Well, there's a strong sense of self-preservation, and I think that you know, I guess the, the three things: that the mystery, uh, the miracles, and authority. And you know, you, you see it, you know, with with the Israelites with Moses when they're going they're going through the desert and they've 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 got this this blessing but they keep abandoning it because of their hunger. And ultimately, you know, God satisfies the hunger with manna from heaven. Yeah. So there's this this basic primal need that of survival that seems to get in our way of appreciating the mystery of, of Christ and, and it, and it kind of goes to a more gener general sense I guess of you know focusing on the things around you now versus you know the, the, the mystery of what we're really ultimately trying to achieve that the objective is not to to live here on earth and be extraordinarily successful and never be hungry or anything else the the ultimate objective is to get to to heaven and to live Go there home. forever. Yeah. And the struggle man has with that. We're physical beings in a physical world and we have physical needs. But Christ's answer is that yeah, we also have spiritual beings that have spiritual mm -hmm. needs. Right. Yeah, and they're higher. I mean, it seems to me there's a hierarchy. He's not saying one counsels out. It's man does not live by bread. Let me turn it around. to to look at it, ask the question another what would have happened, what would it say about us, what would have happened if Christ had accepted the miracle and turned the stones into, into bread? Let's say he accepted or gave in and he turned the stones, what, how would that have changed things for us? So it's another way of saying what did he do for us by rejecting the... Showing us the priority. Huh? Showing us the priority. If he had turned the stone into bread and, and, and fed himself, then it would have led us to believe that the, the needs on earth are greater than the, the, the needs of And what, the anybody else? Yeah, in, anybody else? Well, symbolically, he turned the stones into bread. He fed us, literally, not symbolically, spiritually. Would it affect our faith? Would, would it affect the way we look at God or Christ? Well, he's a miracle worker. Well, let's say he performed the miracle yeah. that he turned the stones into bread. What would what would that have? How would that have affected the way we look at him or our faith? He gave in to the devil. Hmm? He would have given in to the devil. What would that mean for us in the way that we look at God? You don't have to raise. Your hand. Well, um, it wouldn't give me much hope. <laughs> I'm not a miracle worker but that there's a higher um, purpose, if I will. It's about purpose to the reality of life. We don't live by bread alone. So that gives me something to say, well, then I would ask him, what, what else am I living for? In other words, it's giving me... If he me didn't a, do it. If he didn't do it. Yeah. I, I like that he didn't do it. Yeah because most of us are not turning stones into bread and all this hocus right. pocus which is there. But it, he, he 
every time I think, like if I'm in a crisis or something, I think it's not, like if the stock market goes down and we're into the deep depression, I'm not living by bread alone. I'm still at peace because I'll get food somehow if I have to go grow it in my yard. I'll get it. Uh, that's hope for the ordinary, for the person who's not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Turn it around now is what I'm asking. Okay. What if he had turned the stones into bread? What would, how would it change your response, both to yourself and to him? I I'm a skeptic, so I would be skeptical. Well, where's the magic in that? How, how did I? How did I? There's a there's a magic in it. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yes, yeah. Yes. I, I would want. I'd have different set of questions for me personally. Yeah. Can yeah. you express one of them? Well, I, I certainly just just all the questions that somebody who says I don't understand this. It would take me a while to get to. Like I watch any magician, I don't understand it. But I would just say, eh, I would dismiss it, probably. Me, personally. Shake one, yeah. Well, and I think in modern days, imagine if that happened today. We, first of all, would see it four million times on instant replay on <laughs> CNN. Yeah. There a panel of experts on how do you change stone into bread. And, didn't really happen, and, and all of this over-analysis diminishes the very act itself. I mean, if you see it four million times, you're not going to be amazed if you would. How would it change your relation to God? <coughs> would it change the way you relate to Him? Oh, I think it's a challenge. I think that's why we're going through what we're going through. I mean, this media over-analysis of everything metaphysical, <coughs> I think can't help but have a impact on, on people's faith on a day-to-day -day basis. It makes, um, it makes Christ what Father James kept saying he wasn't. It makes him more of a um, celestial ATM. I need bread, so give me bread. And yeah. it turns something as common as stones into bread. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't it be harder not to use God then if you thought if if scientists are right? Or I mean, we can't. Li I want to go to. I, want, I hope I don't forget this. Um, we can't live without bread, so we know that without it we'll die. If there is an impulse in us to want to live, then very often we find ourselves in the predicament that Mary was in. What if we lose everything, and the options are commit suicide? Or something else. I don't know. You know, put food in your garden or whatever. Um, just to to not forget this. Those of you who did the Odyssey, do you remember how Odysseus's companions died? They listen. They were listening to the sirens. Not not that soon. Mm -hmm. They ate the cows. They were when they came to the, the. This is so important. They came to the Isle of Helios, the sun god. And the sun, the sun god told them not to eat the cattle of Helios. And it says of those cattle, they were not born of generation, which means they're eternal. I remember going through that, that those are images of what Plato called the forms. So there's an element of blasphemy. And the choice they had when they started starving, they were close to dying. They said, what are we going to do? We've been told by God not to eat this cattle. It's holier. It's like a prefiguration of Eucharist, that there's an old... We take food for granted, but it gives us our life. 
Those men were told, don't eat the cattle. They were starving, so the choice was disobey the God and eat, um, <coughs> and take their chances and go out to sea and see what happened. They ate, and they went down on the ship. It was the punishment. And we don't know what would have happened if they'd not eaten it and endured longer. You know, but, but it's interesting to me that in Homer, um, you've got a situation like that where you're told not to eat what's at issue is self-preservation, and they disobey the gods in Eden to die. So my question here is what, you know, if, if he does it, um, instead, of, instead of growing in our faith when things got hard, our first inclination would be to use him, to presume on him that he could, because that, that impulse for life is so great. What about the second one when he said, all this will be yours if you serve me? If he had given in to that, how, how would it have changed our relationship to him? Or why did he do that? Why did he refuse that? Every one of these, it seems, point to us. Um, why, did he, why did he have to undergo that temptation for us? Mm -hmm. What would it mean for us that he did that? And what would it have meant if he had given in to it? How would it have changed? He teaches us not to give in to the devil. That's it. He's our role model. Right. He didn't give in. So that's a lesson for me. Yeah, and, and, and he said, don't, don't serve. God says, don't serve any other gods but me, because he, the, the, the test was, um, if you serve me, I'll let you be ruler of all this. Um, so the issue there was serving, and... Um, and not serving. He was already ruler of all this. So Who? The, Christ. Christ. He was already ruler of all well, this. Well, except the devil was done. <laughs> <laughs> except we had, there's some sense in which God has given the devil reign over, you know, earth. But, but I mean, each one of them kind of speaks to our greatest weakness, it seems. Like, you know, yeah. power, you know, we've talked about survival. Another one is power. You know, the the desire to rule or the desire to be in control of everything and by refusing that it's a lesson that that's not what you really should be seeking there's a greater power beyond that and that's what you should be seeking so I mean the first one is survival the second one is power don't go to the third okay what happens what happens in the second if he would have I, I, I think it's the same thing that would have happened in the first. It, it, it would have told us that it's okay to seek those desires because Christ did. He chose those. So he chose, he chose food when he was hungry, and it was more important than anything else. He chose power when it was offered because it was more important than anything else. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute about the third one. And to me, it's basically Christ showing us that we are going to encounter those things but don't let them control your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and just to extend it is, what wouldn't we identify with as a source of power? A Hollywood actor, have a fortune, you know, find whatever it is that is a source of power from whatever it is we want that it gives us power over something. And we can see how immediately we would make that thing into God. I mean, once again, we would, we would replace God with something we created. 
we wanted for ourselves. Christ took that away. So in every one of these things, he's, he's teaching us something about how we do things in the world with each other and how we look at him. What about the third? The devil says, throw yourself off. Um, if, you really are, if you really are God, <coughs> and he is, and he is, um, the angels will minister and save you, catch you, break your fall. And he says, you don't tempt God. What is Christ doing there, and what would happen if he had given into that one? You wanted to go to the third, did you want to? Well, I was just trying to give somebody else Anybody else? <laughs> Nikki. <laughs> Come on. I'm going to make, I'm going to be a voice on that trip of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tempt God. Don't threaten God. Don't um, bargain with Him. That's I mean, He teaches us what not to do, and then follow His examples. We don't bargain with God. If you don't give me, you know, the, the lottery ticket that's going to win, I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to love you anymore. Yeah. And I don't think it's just threaten. I think it's don't presume on Him. Mm -hmm. You know, don't take risks. Don't take risks. Don't presuming on him to bail you out. I'm, Go ahead. I think also that he has a sense of, he knows who he is at his core. Christ. Christ. Yeah. And so he's saying, you can, you can, this isn't who I am. I, this is, I don't want to be doing these jumping off of all this stuff. This isn't, this is, I know who I am. In other words, if somebody calls you a name and you know, if you're really secure inside in your own identity, you just, I know who I am. I mean, that's... Except one of the, the, the interesting, it seems to me one of the things we, we just cannot overlook here is this is God. And I don't think he's just doing it for himself. He's doing it for us because his whole... But by the, I think you all know this. This starts his ministry. His ministry in both Matthew, this is Matthew Luke, and I think it's the Cana thing and the other, but here it starts his ministry. So in a very, seems to me, emphatic way, he's making us aware of why he's come here for us and the things that he's going to have to do for us. Because if he doesn't, it's going to change our relationship to him. So it's not just, right. you know, I know who I am, God. There isn't anything he does that doesn't help us understand what he's doing. And, and so to, to go back to the, because we've got to wrap this up, in the um, rebellion chapter, what becomes really clear is how sensitive Yvonne is to human suffering. It's the Job question. Why does God allow this? And um, he's particularly sensitive to the um, sufferings of children who are innocent. And he's acutely sensitive. I mean, he, he suffers. It really bothers him that kids... This is Yvonne and the Grand Inquisitor now presenting the story of the Cardinal who represents Rome who's taken all these things on to take away these difficulties. So my question is, what does this say about Yvonne? His, his view of God, his view of humans in their suffering. It's the Job story, but it's taken to another level. What does this say about Yvonne? Is that clear? Because this starts his this starts his ministry, so Christ isn't just affirming his 
you know, confidence. He's, he's gone. Everything he's doing is helping us to see something to, to give some clarity on what he's, what's behind what he's doing and why it's important for us. Because it, you know, it's, as we've been saying, if, you, if, he, if he gave in to any of those things, it would have radically changed the way we deal with God. I mean, the last one, just to take an example, if, 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 if he says, if you're God, throw yourself off. I mean, there are times I, aren't there times, gamb- Dostoevsky had to know this. He had a gambling addiction. He put his family at risk often. He, he had to know the dark side of risking. Had to know it deeply. How many, are there times in our lives when we do something presuming on God that he'll bail us out? What would have happened if Christ had done that thrown himself off knowing how would that have affected us? What do all these things say about Ivan as a character? There's not Alyosha, it's not Dimitri, it's Ivan. He's very sensitive to injustices, to suffering, and he has this certain understanding of us and the, and the Catholic Church. What is it? I, I think he's He's lost the the mystery part of the equation. I mean, I, I think the to me the third the third miracle also speaks to that 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 mystery. It's kind of like you know you see you see a, a a magician and he does this act and it's like it's it's amazing and then somebody tells you how he does it and it and, and you could care less to ever see it again, yeah. right? Well, the, the the whole the whole mystery of we just don't know. I mean, no matter how hard we try, you know, all the math and science we throw at it, when it gets to the very bottom line, we just don't know. And we've got to come to grips with that. I'm, I'm never going to know until, until he comes back and, and chooses to share it with me. And I think Ivan's got that constant struggle between the intellectual and the and the mysterious, and he just he is completely put aside the mystery part, and is frustrated because he can't figure he can't figure it all out, and he doesn't understand why you know God can allow all these injustices to occur. And I so I, to me that's the the third part of this thing is the fact that we don't know, and we continue to try to search it out and get closer to God as part of the process, is part of the survival mechanism. I think when you take previous chapter and this chapter together, it's uh, the age-old problem of why is it even in the world? And I know people who have lost their faith uh, yeah. who be, you know, uh, because of the problem of evil in the world, their only explanation is there, there is no God. And, and uh, that's the conclusion that they come to. Yeah. By the way, I don't want to lose the chance here because I think Don's absolutely right on. It seems to me one of the effects of Christ giving in to every one of those would be a loss of faith. I mean, put those two things together. That the the situation we're in is that there are lots of things we don't know that asks of us a faith because otherwise we're left on our own resources. We'll either become disbelievers and we want to have our bread and we'll reject God, or we'll lose our faith. If we if the bread if we don't have the bread, if the difficulties are there, we don't have authority or power or we lose our faith. That what Christ did assumed a goodness to our nature that Yvonne seems to believe we don't have. 
His whole premise is we are too weak. We're too, we're too weak to be left with mysteries. And I think that, to shorten it, I, unless anybody, anybody have a thought on why he sees the Catholic Church the way he does here? Well, I think they, the, the, in his view, that the Catholic Church has taken on the Roman authority, the power, yep. you know, dominion over things. the yep. world. Yep. 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 Sorry, go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I think so. We don't have time now, but I want to leave you all with this question because we need to stop it. It seems to me he, he looks at the Roman church that way, that the church has taken on all of those things as a way of, because the Roman church un, accepts man in his weakness um, and takes all these things upon itself. So humans don't have to deal with this. The church will give it bread. The church will give it whatever miracles. The church will do all these things. But the effect of it is that it has it taken man outside of this sort of existential mystery that asks of us an act of faith. That, that we, because without it, we don't have a reason for turning to God. We can manage in the world, we don't need a God. Take all, all mystery, all miracles, and, and we will make whatever we want. We, we will find our authority. And it's really interesting. We've been talking a lot about um, respectability you know, in the Protestant world and, and the taking away of the sacraments. It, there's, it seems to me there's a certain comfort there. You don't have to deal with miracles. You've got a, you've got a moral code. It's like the old law. You've got this to stand on. You don't need God. You've got the law. There's this way. Um, what happens when that's taken away? What happens to this Russian people when all of its codes are gone? Then what do they do? Chaos. Yeah. Lost. Unless you have something to... A center, yeah. Center. But it shows how, how human it is to turn to things in the world for our authority, for our power, to take away mystery, whatever those codes are. And right now we're experiencing a people who's lost all of that, who are lost themselves, confused. Um, um, here's the question I'd like to just, um, why, why, does, why does Yvonne look at the Catholic Church that way? Just hold it, I don't wanna, unless anybody wants a quick answer in this. Or unless I've already answered or we've answered it together. Why does he see the Catholic Church? Remember, he, he's critical of it because he says King Pip gave all those lands to the Pope that established the Papal States. So it seemed to give it a, a political a political basis. And then he said, for 1500, you gave the Pope everything. You know, um, he, he got all those criticisms. Um, Anyway, in, why does he look at Catholicism? Is there something important to see there? If anybody has an answer, we can take just a minute. But otherwise, just give that some thought. Next week, I want to look at the, the Zosima section, and I want to look at the Dimitri section after when, when he goes to the tavern and he and Grishenka um, come together and what all, what all is going on there, okay? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. You guys have a good week. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Thank you. <laughs>
I certainly enjoyed having that. Answer the question. Oh, no, I just got that. Oh, no, 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 so we thoroughly enjoyed it. Fred, can you come on over for a second? Sure. Thank you. No, don't do not be sorry at all. Always makes me nervous when he does this. You're going to laugh at this question. Ask your question. Answer. I Yeah, so he starts sticking up the place. And so all of these 
Orthodox both sides of the Ottoman Syrian started the nation talking about both of the Russian and the Syrian It's interesting to hear about some of the mythologies and so we share this distinction by the ones who have been so when you read that, I kind of see this question that kind of speaks to it. There is a problem to see the suffering happening with something really disgraceful. And I think that's how monks should be as a minister. We have to be as a but I just aware of those they're all they're all they're all How long is it going to be? Yeah. A week with kids at Disneyland? Be safe. Yes, have a great time. You have to get it. I love it. It's the only part of the whole book. Wait, wait, wait. Because I want to hear you. That's right, because you read the whole book now. You know. Wait a second.